we make decisions every day about our future based on the predictions of trusted sources. We do this almost every day. When you woke up this morning, uh, you likely looked at your weather app to decide what you were going to wear this morning because it looked a little bit gloomy outside. Um, you often trust, if you have a 401k, you trust people um, that know more than you about the stock market to um, help you make decisions about your 401k, about your investments, about your retirement. Um, we, people make bets all the time about sporting events. Uh, today, the Titans are favored by three, by the way. Just wanted you to know. Uh, life, yet life is uncertain. We have trusted sources that we count on that are, predict the future, but life is very uncertain, isn't it? You think about the weather, you think about a couple of years ago when a hurricane looked like it was going to come and hit Corpus Christi and it turned north and it hit us and we got 35 to 50 inches and it wrecked our city. I you to think about the 2008 stock market crash. That happens. Life is uncertain. And on any given Sunday, the Texans could beat the Patriots or they could lose to the Broncos. So... I don't know who you're betting on today. I, I don't, I, I, I'm not a betting man, but I can't bet on the Texans, the Texans very often. But we also make predictions about people. If you got married, you walked down an aisle and you put a ring on a finger and you made a decision over the course of time based on the intel of the person that you were marrying to see or not if that person was going to be faithful, if that person was going to believe and trust and to death do us part in the covenant you made in marriage. We do this with people all the time. We make predict predictions about how people are going to respond to us with lasting consequences. Life is uncertain. How many things can you actually, think about it, how many things can you actually count on in your life? What things are for certain? What things can you take to the bank, if you will? You see, we have a God who is the Alpha and the Omega. He knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. And he flexes in Scripture. He kind of flexes his muscles so that we can see them a little bit in the Old Testament. And he makes predictions, but they're more than predictions. It's based on a spread, on a model. He makes predictions based on the word of his power and who he is. See, God doesn't exist in time and space like you and I. He knows the beginning from the end. He ordains all things. And so we have a God who, but yet he reveals these things to us. In the Old Testament, we see this, particularly with the person of Jesus, about 300 times in about 300 different ways. God says more and more and more about what he's going to do through his son, Jesus and all of those things have come true. So he predicts, as we saw last week, the coming of Messiah through the seed of a woman, the virgin birth, who would crush the serpent's head. That's Satan at the cross. And so we saw this embryonic view of, and this picture of, of what God would do in the future. And the beauty of the Old Testament and what we call progressive revelation is you see that picture get clearer and clearer and clearer. You see, the God of the Bible makes predictions. He's a trusted source. He's a certain source. And the benefit for us is, is we get to look back. We get to look back from the beginning of time and say, God has been faithful. He has been faithful. He's predicted the future and it's come true every single time. And so when we sit here today with the problems and the, and the struggles and the challenges that we have, we know God can be faithful and will be faithful. And as we look forward 
As we look forward to the end, we can say this is a God who's been faithful in the past and he'll be faithful in the end. This is our God. I'm going to look at, we're going to look at a prophetic Christmas this morning because God is a trusted source. And I want you to see some very clear and explicit what we would call prophecies. God looking, not only looking down the corridors of time, but ordaining things that would happen in the future to a people, Israel, they, they were in a rough spot. They were in a rough spot. They were in a dark place, much of it brought on by themselves, and they needed hope. And so we're going to see prophecies, one particular prophecy about the coming of Messiah. So turn with me to the book of Isaiah, and we'll be in chapters 9, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And when I think of clear and explicit prophecies of Jesus, there's no place quite like the book of Isaiah. Think with me just for a minute about the predictions that you see from the, from the book of Isaiah, the coming of Messiah, his life, his death. Isaiah 53, come to mind, the suffering servant. Isaiah chapter 7. In Isaiah chapter 7, before we get to 9, that's where we're going to be, um, God makes a prediction through the prophet Isaiah to say that there will be a woman, see also Genesis 3 imagery from last week, a woman who will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call his name what? Emmanuel, God with us. And then you get to chapter 9. Chapter 9, let me read it. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Give you a little context, and then we'll get to the particular two verses that I want to unpack for you this morning in verses 6 through 7. So chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. This is future. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. As on the day of Midian, think Gideon. For every boot of the trample warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be turned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. For to us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of his increase, of his government, and of peace there shall be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You'll see three things from this passage, particularly verses 6 and 7. We will answer these questions. How will Emmanuel come? Who is Emmanuel? And what will he do? The first thing I would tell you this morning is this. Emmanuel is mysterious. He's mysterious and he's marvelous in how he came. Look at verse 6 there. In verse 6 it says, For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given. When I read the line, for to us a child is born, this is the Messiah who would be wrapped in humanity. That he would be fully human. This is imagery toward Bethlehem. 
This is an earthly beginning. The, the Bible gives us some help with this. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Inasmuch as the children, you and I, have partaken in, the fl- in flesh and blood, he shared the same, speaking of Jesus. In Galatians 4, 4, which we looked at last week a little bit, it says, When the fullness of time came, he brought forth a son from the seed of woman. See, the point is, he came in earthly humanity. Jesus was a man. He was fully human. He experienced the full range of emotions, yet without sin. He experienced the full range of suffering and all that you and I walk through. He walked through. Jesus, the Messiah, would be human. But there's something else. He, was, he came in earthly humanity, but he also came in heavenly deity. Look at that second phrase. To us, a son is given. It doesn't say... For to us a child is born, for to us a son is born. It says, for to us a son is given. That he's not ours, he was given. He's from eternity past. That's what the scripture says, that Jesus has always been. There was nothing that is made that wasn't made by him. In in the beginning was the word, Jesus, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. These are the truths of scriptures. For us the son is given. So you have you have divinity wrapped in humanity. This is the great gift that God has given. Verse 6. A divine being wrapped in humanity. Psalm 2.7 says it this way. Tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son and today I have begotten you. You know the begotten language, right? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? The only what son? Only begotten son. See, that means that he's of the same stuff as the father's made out, that he's been before he was. Here's the idea. God's Christmas gift came in the person of deity wrapped in the package of humanity. There was a time in which, listen to this, there was a time in which Jesus was not But there's never been a time where the son was not. One guy said it this way. The marvelous mystery of the manger is that God translated deity into humanity without without discarding the deity or distorting the humanity. That's miraculous. That's mysterious. But this is the way that the Messiah Emmanuel came. He came in mystery and it was marvelous. He came as a man, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, but he was the king. Can you get your mind around that? Can you get your mind around that kind of gift that God gives you? So why does that matter? I mean, really. Okay, he's God. I know theologically he's God and he's man. Why is that important? This week I was, uh, Thursday, I ended up for a number of reasons, I ended up working from home. And so I'm sitting in the dining room, and the dining room in our house in Cyprus is right next to the door. And I'm working on this passage, and I'm working on this point right here, and the doorbell rings. And there are two ladies that, in dresses that came to the door. And I opened the door. I knew it was Jehovah Witnesses, some ladies, and they, and they have different openings sometimes. And so they brought me to a verse in the book of Psalms. It talked about one day... Um, the earth will be changed. It will be different. And then they asked me the question, um, where is your hope? 
And I said, do you have a hope? Do you have any hope for the future? And um, I, I didn't mean it in, a, in an ugly way, but I just said, my hope is in Christmas and in Easter. They don't really do that. Um, my hope is in Christmas and Easter. The hope of the world has come. And he wasn't just a man. He wasn't just a created being, but he was God in the flesh. And, and they said, well, we believe in Jesus too. And I said, I know you believe in a Jesus. And I wasn't argumentative. Um, I said, I know you believe in a Jesus, but, but I want you to hear this at Christmas season. I want you to hear that, listen, if your Jesus was created, he's not big enough to take away your sins because only God can take away your sins. Would you consider Christ this Christmas season? That he is both divine and human. That's a different message than a Jehovah Witness has. Why does it matter? Because people, whether it's intentionally with religion or whether it's people that say, he's not Lord, he is not God. There are people all around us every day that, that, that don't believe that. And even our hearts as believers, we struggle to say, Am I going to let Jesus be Lord? And so his deity matters. It matters for your salvation. And his humanity matters as well. If we don't have an advocate that is human, he can't take away sins either. And, and, and more than that, not more than that, but also with that, think about the struggles that you have every day. You can lean on God, who is deity, on those things, but Jesus has walked through everything, every emotion, everything that you walk through. And so the Bible says that Jesus, as a human being who was deity, can also sympathize with your weaknesses. So this Christmas season, for some of you, you can sing joy to the world. The Lord has come because life is good. But some of us who have lost loved one this Christmas, this is a hard Christmas. And we need an advocate. We need someone who we can believe can say, come to me. He is weary and I will give you rest for your soul. See, why does it matter? It matters a lot. It matters that Jesus is deity, and it matters that Jesus was both deity and humanity. This is how he came. What kind of Christmas gift did God give us? He gave us a Christ who draws close, who sympathizes. And I might ask you this morning, you think about Christmas gifts, and I think about the gifts that I'm going to get my kids, and I think, you know, how many weeks, what's the over-under on how many weeks my kid is going to appreciate that gift before they want the next one? My son has a birthday on the 29th, so he gets it all at once, right? But how long? And, I, and honestly, if I'm asking the question, i got to ask it to myself as well. How long am I going to like that new golf club that I got for myself this Christmas? Babe, I already got it, so we're good. Um, until I want another one. So for those of you who know Jesus here this morning, I want you to think about the gift that God has given you. And maybe that was 20 years ago. Maybe you trusted Christ 30 years ago. Maybe it was five years ago. But are you looking for something else? Are you looking for a gift that's different? Because in your mind, and this is our hearts. This is not a dig on anybody. This is our hearts. Our hearts are prone to wander to somewhere else, aren't they? We need to be reminded of the gift that God has given us in the person of Jesus. Well, how did Emmanuel come? He came wrapped in earthly humanity. He came wrapped in heavenly deity. But what kind of God-man, what would, what would that be like? What would this God-man, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, 
what would he be like? What, how could we describe him? Look at the end of verse 6. And his name shall be called four names. Guess what? All four of those names that are given, they're, they're multiple. Each of them are, are, are two words to describe this Messiah, Emmanuel. They both have deity and humanity wrapped into them. Each of them do. Look at it. Wonderful Counselor, the only time you see the word wonderful in Scripture, anytime you see the word wonderful, it mentions, it's only mentioning a character, a characteristic of God himself. Okay? You don't see it um, related to people or anything else. This word is only used for deity. Wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. All a counselor, I think, human. Wonderful, I think, deity. Mighty God. Human, divine, everlasting, none of us are everlasting, human, father. He's everlasting, he's a father, he's a prince of peace. There's deity and humanity wrapped up in every one of those descriptions of Jesus. He's the king, one guy said, with four names. What, what emphasize, what's emphasized in those names, deity and humanity? Let's take each one of those just for a minute. Wonderful counselor. You only see that mentioned with God. But... I think about counselors, and I think about, man, I, the churches that I've been at, um, there have been some incredible counselors that have helped people through, biblical counselors, Christian counselors that help people through. But if you go to a counselor out there somewhere, they're going to give you psychology 101. Think about counseling today and all the bad counsel that we get, we could get from people if we go to the wrong source, but, but not Jesus. He's a wonderful counselor. You think about the garden. We were in the garden last week in Genesis 3. Who was the counselor first? The counselor in the garden to, to Adam and Eve. It was Satan. He was counseling them to turn their backs on God. To say God hasn't given you enough. But here you see the picture of a wonderful counselor. Who will crush Satan's head. In the New Testament this is what you see about Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 24. It says that Jesus is the very wisdom of God. He is wisdom. He's an advisor, he's a teacher, he's a friend, he's a confidant. And he says to come to him. See, Jesus is the wise counselor who solves all my confusions. And I'm going to parse out a few different groups of people in here over the, next, over the course of these four words, these four descriptions, and I just want to speak to the ladies for a minute, that, that Jesus is the one that you go to. He's your counselor. When you're trying to figure out how to have the perfect Pinterest Christmas and get everybody's gifts and... And bake desserts and make Christmas work. And you're stressed out. Or your spouse or your kids aren't being the people that they want to be. He is your counselor. He's a wonderful counselor. He will listen. And he will instruct. And then the next phrase is mighty God. Literally this is warrior God. Hero God. This conjures up. This idea of battlefield and warfare imagery. One guy said it this way. The captain of our salvation, that's Hebrews 2, would take the field at Calvary, engage the titan forces of sin and Satan. Men, are you with me on this? Death, hell, and the grave. And when the dust settles, an empty tomb stands as the eternal monument to the victory of our mighty God. This is more evidence that this child will be deity. He is a worthy defender who shelters me, who cares for me, who protects me through conflict and from conflict. Men in the room. Christianity is not some emasculated religion. 
It's the religion that has Jesus, the Christ, at the center of it. He is the mighty God. He is a warrior. His vision for your life is bigger than any vision that you have for your business or your family. He is a mighty, tender warrior, but he is a mighty warrior. That's a vision and a direction as a man I can get behind. That I can sing a mighty fortress is my God. This is Jesus. He's a wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. He's also everlasting Father. When you see this phrase, if you know a little bit of theology, you're going, wait a second, he's the son. And, and this text is describing him as an everlasting father. We have a Trinitarian problem, right? I don't think we do. I think these are titles that describe the son, that describe this child. I don't think we have a Trinitarian problem. I think these are descriptions of what Jesus is like, what this son would be like. That he's actually, in Revelation 1.8, he is the Alpha and Omega. He's the father of eternity, if you will. Hebrews 1.8 says this, To the Son, to the Son, his throne is forever. Okay? We are his kids. You know the imagery in Scripture that let the little children come to him? The imagery of we are children of God, that we were Christ children. He's a fatherly in the way that he cares for us. He's always there. He's never kids too busy. He provides, he protects forever. See, Jesus is the watchful, like the watchful father who showers us with his care. I want to talk to the kids. I got a lot of kids in here, right? And so I want to talk to you for a minute about this, that, that Jesus is like your father, and, and I look around and I, I look at some amazing fathers in the room. You guys have some amazing fathers that are here, that they care for you, they provide for you, they go play baseball with you, they come to your ballet recitals, they love you. But they would say, kids, listen to this, they would say that they're not perfect, and you would say amen, right? Okay? They want to be there, they want to protect you, they want to care for you, but you need to know that you have a heavenly you have Jesus who cares for you even in ways in which your heavenly father and mother can't do. There have been times, I'll tell you this, there have been times in my kids' lives, a lot of times, number one, where they know I'm not perfect and they have to listen to me preach, right? They have to listen to me preach and go, hey, he doesn't do it right all the time either. But there are times that I've had to turn to my kids, kids, and say, you know what, I can't help you with that. Only Jesus can help you with that. If you're mad at your sister or your brother or you're mad at somebody at school, I can help you walk through it. But what you need is not me. You need Jesus because he's there. He's a better father than I am. I'm your father. I'm here. But he's better. And so turn to Jesus. Kids, you don't become an adult and then say, okay, I'm going to turn to Jesus after you move out of the house. We want you. Your parents want you. To love Jesus and follow Jesus and let him guide you because he's perfect. And he can do that in ways that even your, your, your earthly fathers can't do. And so I encourage you in that. Prince of Peace. Look at the context of the passage. I said Israel's in a dark place, right? They've chosen a dark way. The Bible says um, back in Deuteronomy, hey, if you don't obey and you don't follow the law, well, guess what? There's not going to be blessing. I'm going to kick you out of your land. And there will be dark times, and this is where we're at. When we get to Isaiah, he's a prophet, and he's speaking both hope and judgment on the people. And the, the nation Israel is about to go into exile. In 722 B.C., you can go through the history. They're about to go into exile. That prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7 that I mentioned earlier, 
This is, where the, this is where the nation is. It's so bad, okay? Isaiah comes to King Ahaz and says this. He says, hey, ask for a sign from God. And you know what King Ahaz says? Nah, I'm not going to do that. You know what? He's too busy. I don't need to bother God. And what was really going on is King Ahaz already had his own plan. He didn't, he didn't want to consult God. And so he says, no, I don't, I don't need to do that. And you know what? God said, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. I'm going to give you a sign of someone who's going to come, the virgin who's going to give birth to a son, and he will be with us, and he will conquer, and he will be the offspring that conquers. So it ended up being a judgment of King Ahaz. This is the king of the nation, Israel, refusing to ask God for help. That's where the nation Israel was in this day. And so what you see here, when he says the prince of peace, there was no peace right here. There was no peace in this time of history that we're in right here. There was a dark place. If you look back at the first few verses that I read, the people were in darkness. But there's this hope coming, the hope of Messiah that is given. And so this is what we see, the prince of peace in verse 6. In verse 6, you see that. So what kind of peace does Jesus, this Messiah, bring? It brings peace with God. This is what Romans 5 says, and the peace of God. And so if you are here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus, you don't yet know God through, the, through his son, you have, the, you have peace with God because right now the Bible says you don't have peace with God. You aren't right with God. But he can bring peace through his son. And if you know Christ here this morning, it says that we can, we can have peace The peace of God. So he's the prince of peace. Well, Emmanuel is marvelous in how he came. Look at these adjectives. Magnificent in who he is. And that matters today. That matters for men and women and kids. It matters when we're fighting and we don't have peace. But he's also something else. Keep looking um, here in the text. He's also mighty... And what he will do. You see this Emmanuel is also mighty in what he will do. Um, Last week we saw this promise of the virgin birth and Messiah crushing Satan's head. I got a couple verses that I want to show you what he will do. This is a prediction and the fulfillment. If you've got it back there. So 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 and 13 say this. Uh, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, he's talking to David, after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In the short term, he's speaking of Solomon, but in the long term, next verse, look who he's speaking of, Luke chapter 1. This is what Luke believes about that passage, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and he shall be, and his name shall be Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of the father of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is what Messiah would do. This is what the son who's a king would do from the line of from the line of David, he will be the king to come that will rule forever. Emmanuel is mighty in what he will do. And look at how he will rule. Three things. He will rule completely. Look at verse 6 
it says that, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, on his shoulders. We use that phrase, hey, you've got the shoulders, you've got the shoulders of the world on you, right? You've got all of that weight on you. Well, guess what? He took that weight and he bore that weight so he will rule completely. He won't be voted in or he won't be voted out. He will rule completely. Praise God. He will also rule eternally. Look at verse 7. There will be no end to his government. Look at the end there. It says, and he will from this time forth and forevermore. He will rule eternity. No end in time or space to his rule. He will establish it. He will uphold it. And what's the nature of his rule? I mean, if he's going to rule completely and he's going to rule forever, what's the nature of his rule? I want to know as a subject, what's the nature of Jesus' rule? That's the question. Hello. That's the question that I'm asking. Look at it. He will rule with justice and righteousness and peace. You need some of that right now in our government? He will rule with justice and righteousness and peace. That's a theocracy I want to live in one day. I don't know about you. See, the Bible calls us, I'll just apply it in this way. The Bible surely calls us all over the place to be good citizens, to vote, to engage, to encourage good, to put down evil, especially policies that matter. Those are important things for all of us as citizens of this nation or any nation. But if our hope is wrapped up in our government to fix the world, it's surely a misplaced hope, is it not? See, only a God-man, only a human, and only someone who's human and divine can reign in this way. That's true in government. That's true in church. We are fallen human beings, and there will be fallen governments and fallen church government governances that we all will live under. But one day, there will be a divine human Jesus, the king who will rule, he will rule completely, eternally, and powerfully. He will do that with peace and justice and righteousness. That's why I think the Bible says, come, Lord Jesus, come. That's what we see in Scripture. There's something else here. This text reminds us, and particularly this point, I think reminds us that, that heaven's really clear about what Christmas is about. He's really clear about what Christmas is about. And so I think in the culture we live in, we have fun traditions. But here's what I would encourage you as a family, as a couple. I would encourage you to tell the story of Christmas over and over and over to your kids. Read it. Go to, Chris, go to like 14 Christmas nativities. Like overdo the meaning of Christmas with your family. That they might see Christmas for what it is. Watch the nativity story. Do the countdown calendar if you have little kids to Jesus' birth. Do all of those things to remind yourself of what this season is about. What kind of gift did, did God give us? Wrapped in humanity and deity. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. Everlasting father. In a rule that is forever and ever. If you're here this morning and you've never unwrapped that gift that God has given you, the Bible says, as many as received him, he gave the right for you to become a child of God. Unwrap that gift. Make Christ Lord of your life. It's a beautiful gift. And if you know Christ, 
Maybe you unwrapped that gift a long time ago, and, but maybe you're looking for something better. And I'm here to tell you that there's nothing that will satisfy you like Jesus will, the child born in a manger. You know, if you watch any TV during the Christmas season, you see all kinds of commercials that are trying to sell you something. And so I think of the last decade or so, and I think of a number of commercials. Maybe you can think of commercials in your mind as well that have stuck out. I have a couple of them that stick out over the last decade or so that, that, that I remember. Remember Lexus, what is it? December to remember. We're going to test marketing skills of these companies right now. The Lexus December to remember, right? Uh, MasterCard, the joy of giving, you know, when you get the tissue, that's th- box of tissue, $3, uh, brown bag, three cents, two cars in the driveway, her reaction, priceless. So we get the joy of giving. So Lexus is December to remember the joy of giving MasterCard. Who can forget K Jewelers? A diamond is forever, right? A diamond's forever. Have you ever received a gift? Because all those commercials kind of point to one thing, just the awe and wonder of a gift that you're not expecting. That you can't believe how amazing a gift was for Christmas. Have you been there? But not to be a Scrooge, but here's what they don't tell you in those commercials. That Lexus, like all cars, is going to break down. And if you've got to go do scheduled maintenance, it's going to be expensive. And there's going to be an oil spot on your driveway. You know, uh, that jewelry that we're going to buy, I'm going to be careful with this. It may last a while, but all the men in the room know that there's always room for more jewelry, right? The point is this, as we approach Christmas today, we are reminded of the gift of Christ that is truly forever. That is the most memorable gift that you could get. And it brings lasting joy to the world. Paul said it this way, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Indescribable. I've tried to describe Isaiah 9 today. I've tried to talk about its mystery using adjectives, the mysteriousness of the gift, the magnificence of the gift, how marvelous the gift is, how mighty Jesus will reign. Words can't express, as much as we try and should try to express with words how indescribable the gift of Christ is, we fail. But he is, as Paul would say, the indescribable gift. Your your takeaway today is this. Trust in God's indescribable gift. He, Jesus, is your sure hope. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for a time in your word. We thank you for this clear and explicit prophecy in the Old Testament that clearly points to the person and work of Jesus, his, his first coming that gives us hope, that builds our faith, that brings joy and peace to our lives. Lord, I pray that this would be an encouragement to us. Whatever we're going through today as we come through a Christmas season, whether we're joyful and it's easy for us to rejoice or we are hurting really bad and it's frustrating for us to see people who are singing because we are in pain and we are in a bad place. So, but Lord, I pray even there that you meet us, that you remind us that Jesus was divine and so he's powerful enough to take on our stuff and he's also human. And so we have an advocate. We have one who sympathizes with our weaknesses. We have one um, 
who we can come to with our struggles and will comfort us through this power of the Spirit. We love you, and we thank you for your indescribable gift. In Jesus' name, amen.